This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, September the 19th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, with the Queen being laid to rest, we discuss some of the news implications surrounding the funeral with Michelle McQuig. Denny Boudreaux will stop by the show. He'll discuss the pros and cons of AI language translators, artificial intelligence language translation. And Marco Flalo, he got his hands on one of the new iPhone 14 models, so he'll give you a real-time evaluation of what Apple had to offer with that new piece of hardware. But let's begin the show with our top story of the day, and we're starting in the world of diplomatic relations. The United Nations General Assembly will meet in person this week for the first time in three years. Julie Walker looks ahead. No more pre-recorded addresses or hybrid meetings because of the pandemic. Instead, the UNGA will include speeches from most of the world's leaders, including President Biden. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield says the administration has three priorities, global food insecurity, the U.N. Charter, and global health. As COVID-19 reminded us, global health threats do not respect borders. We must tackle COVID-19, monkeypox, and other outbreaks. Speeches begin Tuesday. Biden, who is traveling to the Queen's funeral, speaks Wednesday. Julie Walker, New York. And Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has met with British Prime Minister Liz Truss for the first time. Trudeau says the war in Ukraine was their most pressing agenda item. There needs to be full accountability of Russia. There needs to be a proper investigation and transparency. And Vladimir Putin, his supporters and the Russian military need to be held to account for the atrocities uh, they have and are continuing to commit uh, in Ukraine. The European Union has already called for a war crimes tribunal after Ukrainian authorities reported evidence of torture on bodies exhumed from a mass grave outside the city of Izium. South Korean President We'll get get there in a second. We'll get there in a second. Uh, Canada will be having more high-level international meetings when a a delegation visits from South Korea this week. Here, once again, you can hear from Brenda Molina-Navidad looking at the agenda. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol will be visiting Toronto and Ottawa on September 22nd and 23rd in his first bilateral visit abroad since he was elected in March. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will meet with the South Korean leader while he is in Ottawa, where the two are expected to discuss plans to work more closely on energy, including electric vehicle batteries, critical minerals and supply chains. Also on the agenda are talks about regional security issues on the Korean Peninsula and Russia's war in Ukraine. Brenda Molina-Navidad, the Canadian Press. Let's move to some stories about climate change surrounding the continent. Hurricane Fiona's center is moving just west of Puerto Rico, but widespread torrential rain with flash flooding is ongoing. Reporter Lucy Yang has more. 
When Julito Serena went to bed, he had a roof over his head. Then Hurricane Fiona struck and did a disappearing act, not only on his home, but also the power grid to all of Puerto Rico. 1.5 million customers now in the dark. With this Category 1 hurricane whipping winds up to 85 miles an hour and dumping two feet of rain on an already vulnerable infrastructure, President Biden has declared a state of emergency for this U.S. territory. No deaths have been reported, but the storm is still forecast to unleash rain across Puerto Rico today. And then up in the northwest, like way in the northwest, Alaska Governor Mike Dunleavy has issued a disaster declaration as a powerful storm is pounding coastal communities. Dunleavy described the scale of the storm. Almost a thousand miles worth of uh, storm front. And uh, uh, we've got a lot of rain, we've got wind, and we've got surge. Storm surge is going to be the uh, big concern. Governor Dunleavy says the storm is affecting the western part of the state in different ways. We've had flooding, uh, ocean flooding. We've had um, impacts on roads and um, potentially seawalls. We've had impacts with regard to uh, fuel storage, uh, oil, uh, oil storage. We are assessing to what degree our uh, water and sewer systems in our communities have impacted. U.S. Major General Torrance Sachs of the Alaska National Guard says troops are providing assistance. We do have helicopters right now in Nome. You can take up to 20 people on our bigger one. It's called a Chinook. But that would likely be for people who need immediate safety evacuation. The storm is what remains of Typhoon Murbach. Let's shift gears a teensy bit here to some of the bigger picture around energy and climate change. The first public database of fossil fuels, fossil fuels is launching today. Lionel Moise explains. It's called the Global Registry of Fossil Fuels, and the launch is happening as climate will be front and center at the United Nations General Assembly meeting in New York City. The registry has data for more than 50,000 oil, gas, and coal fields in nearly 90 countries. It was created by the nonprofit think tank Carbon Tracker and the organization the Global Energy Monitor. Creators say this new database covers 75% of global reserves, the first of its kind available to the public. Lionel Moyes, ABC News. So I hit you with a lot of heavy information there, a lot of intensity, lots to factor into your mind. And of course, we'll be talking about the Queen with Michelle McQuig in about 10 minutes time. So let's go with something a teensy bit lighter here as a last story. A new online service is giving insight into bird migration patterns. Chuck Severson swoops in with this report. A bay-breasted warbler that weighs about the same as four pennies twice a year flies nearly 4,000 miles between Canada's spruce forests and its wintering grounds in northern South America. That's according to a new free-to-the-public online atlas of bird migration by the National Audubon Society. It compiles info from GPS tags, bird branding data from the U.S. Geological Survey, and other advanced tech. Chuck Sievertson, ABC News. Let's get to our daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. On Friday, we asked you, with the release of the iPhone 14, how often do you upgrade your technology? 6% of you said regularly, 31% of you said rarely, and 63% of you said only when my stuff breaks. Today's daily poll. We're going to be talking about a big fundraiser that took place in the Maritimes over the weekend next hour, but I'm curious 
from your perspective at Accessible Media on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. What's your favorite kind of fundraiser? And feel free to shout out a charity or nonprofit in the comments. Is it a gala? You know, those gala dinners you get to go to. Is it a concert or a show? Is it an activity or a sporting event? That's what I'm going to tell you about out there in the Maritimes. Or is it other? Putting other there for you to uh, chime in. Although if you do vote other, you better write in the comments what you're up to. Because I'll come find you. I will. I'll do it. Eliza, when it comes to a fundraiser time, what's your favorite kind of fundraiser to go to? Dave, I have to say, there's a lot of fun ones on this list. Like, I love a concert or concert kind of events like that. But a sports game is just so, so much fun. For those donating, for those playing in it, I actually, back back in the day, back in high school, I played football for a fundraiser. And I'm sure that was very entertaining to watch because <laughs> I am terrible at football. But it was just so much fun. Yeah, one of the events going on in the Maritimes over the weekend was a uh, road hockey tournament where 600 people came in and raised money for one of the hospital foundations in Cape Breton. And it just seems like it's an activity. It's something for people to do. I've emceed and participated in a number of fundraisers uh, in my time. And one of my all-time favorites was something as simple as 18 holes of mini putt or oh. mini golf or putt putt, depending as what region you're from in the world and what you call it. But I just thought to myself, what a great way to just go spend a couple of hours you play some mini putt, mm-hmm. you play 18 holes, it's super casual, it's super relaxed. There was like a little trivia at every hole. There was a little bar at the end, Ooh. a little silent auction, and then that was that. That right? sounds like, like the best event. It like simple, straightforward, easy to organize, not super labor intensive. Not to mention, again, everybody was wrapped up and done in just a couple mm. of hours. Right? I have to say, I am the king of mini putt also we're going to put that to the test okay Uh, i'm ready we're going to have to have a company outing to a mini putt (laughs) course because i think that would be a ton of fun you also mentioned the concert thing what i like about the concert thing too is again it's very much a simple straightforward experience doors open at this time here's your ticket here's your show 10 o'clock rolls around get out it's perfect. Perfect it's amount of time. Totally perfect. It's like just the way to do things. It doesn't stretch on and drone on for hours and hours. With all due respect to those who put together these big galas that go on for six or seven hours and take months to organize, there are easier ways to do these A things. A little long. You have to dress up and look yeah, really good, which yeah. is fun. But sitting in a dress and walking around in high heels for hours can be... A little painful. I don't quite know what you mean by that, but I can only assume. (laughs) Let's bring in Alex Smythe on this one. Alex, I know you've probably covered a bunch of these in your time working for AMI this week. I imagine you've been to one or two in your life. What's your favorite kind of fundraiser? Yeah, I'm definitely in the same camp as uh, you and Eliza where, you know, it's either the activities slash sporting events, maybe the concert, depending on kind of uh, what what the event is itself. Galas, they're a bit too formal for me. They're a bit too uh, stiff. They, as you mentioned, they tend to drag on. You got to be kind of on. You got to be, you know, formal, pres- presentable, all those are types of things. But, I mean, when you have a mini putt event that has a bar at the end, that's my kind of jam. I mean, I, I agree with Eliza. That's the, the best event I've ever heard, and we definitely need to do something similar with the AMI event, I, I'm sure we can we can come up with some sort of a, a vendor fundraiser and we can put Eliza's claims to the test there. 
well, I don't know about the full-blown organizing a fundraiser. I think we're just going to get someone to drive us out to one of these uh, one of these disco mini-putt tournaments or one of these uh, disco mini-putt places that uh, encircle the city. So I think that could be something we can definitely make as a, a team-building exercise as our team is perpetually shifting and, and raising. I do want to make mention of one other kind of fundraiser here that didn't quite necessarily fit this mold. That's a bottle drive. The very simple, humble bottle drive. You stand outside a beer store or an LCBO or whatever the uh, version is in your province or your neck of the woods, and you have people who are part of the community who know there's a bottle drive, come and bring you their bottles or cans, and they're generally happy to do so. And frankly, most people, as they're passing by, are also very happy and willing to pass you their bottles or cans as well. Really simple, straightforward way to raise a little bit of money for people. And uh, I've never been so well greeted by people when I had two empty two fours in my hand and I was very happy to hand those off. I, I don't know where those two fours went. I, I don't know how those disappeared and dissipated so quickly into the ether that was my fridge and then I suppose into my belly. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. That's where you vote on the poll. That's where you can give us feedback about all kinds of things you hear on the show as well. You're not limited to just talking about the poll. You can also send us emails, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or you can give us a phone call, 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Let's go back to Alex Smythe. He has the National Weather Update. Here's our AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland. It's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds this morning with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 16. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, it's a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 18. In Montreal, Quebec. Rain starting this morning with possible thunderstorms this afternoon and up to 20 millimeters expected, a high of 16. In Ottawa, Ontario, heavy rain and possible thunderstorms as well and up to 25 millimeters expected with a high of 16. In Toronto, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of rain and possible thunderstorms and a high of 26. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds becoming sunny later with a high of 25. In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's mainly sunny with rain and possible thunderstorms this afternoon with a high of 22. In, Saskatch in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's a mix of sun and clouds with 60% chance of rain and a high of 17. In Calgary, Alberta, mainly cloudy with a chance of rain late morning and afternoon and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour with a high of 10. In Edmonton, Alberta, showers this morning, then cloudy in the afternoon and high of 14. In Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, it's a mix of sunny clouds and a high of 13. In Vancouver, BC, it's beautiful, it's sunny and a high of 20. And finally, in Victoria, BC, same thing as well, it's sunny and a high of 22. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Yeah, folks are going to be arriving from all across the country in Victoria, British Columbia this week as the Senior National Lawn Bowling Tournament is going on. The National Senior Lawn Bowling Tournament and one of the competitors will be my mom. 
So uh, safe travels today, Mom, as you're working your way across the country. Coming up next, Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will discuss some of the news implications as Queen Elizabeth II is laid to rest in England. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's learn more about what is happening around the funeral and burial for Queen Elizabeth II. And we can begin with some sound from Westminster Abbey. Michelle McQuig has been following along with the funeral all morning long, and Michelle is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Good morning, Michelle. Funeral. <laughs> uh, Michelle, sorry, we, we, you, you, may have, you may have said something there, but we, we caught oh, we got sorry. to your late. I just said uh, good morning, and thank you for replaying one of my favorite moments from the funeral earlier this morning. Yeah, some of the music was actually some of the most stunning really part with, with the choir and, of course, the, the, the building of Westminster Abbey being 68 meters high. Oh. The refraction of the sound was certainly one of the, one of the highlights of the morning. It was glorious. And that what you just heard there was a rendition of Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, which is an old hymn. Uh, it was actually played at William and Kate's wedding some years back. So it has a lot of significance for the family. Very traditional Anglican hymn. And it sounded particularly beautiful this morning in the Queen's, in the context of this funeral. Michelle, there's a lot of places we can start this conversation, but I wonder if you can give me a sense of the scale, both inside and outside the building. Sure. Yeah. Well, so inside the building, of course, it's a pretty uh, select group of people, uh, but 2,000 people were seated inside. They uh, had to go through some pretty tight airport style security to get in. And so they, they were being escorted in about for a few hours leading up to the service, which got underway here around 6 a.m. Eastern, 11 in local time in London. Outside, of course, were thousands and thousands of people who had who had come to to uh, you know be near the cathedral to watch the procession as it left and come in um, apparently during the service itself all these thousands of people stayed put and you could hear a pin drop in the streets uh, which is really remarkable when you think about that as people were just concentrating on watching the funeral from afar um, so that was this has been an event that's drawn just a, an absolute mass of people to London in, in the days leading up to it. People were flocking in over the 10 days uh, of mourning that were that preceded this funeral. Uh, you probably saw reports in the days leading up to it that the queues for the lying in state that preceded all this sometimes had wait times of 24 hours plus. So uh, this really, really, really mobilized the city of London and brought people from near and far to pay their respects. Along those lines, Michelle, were you shocked by the scale of the public response in the UK? I think we knew it was going to be a big story. Did we know that the public response was going to be this big? Yeah, I personally was a little bit. I feel like in Canada where we might be uh, just a step or two removed from the, the, the sense of identity 
tea that the, the British people have with the, with their queen, even though all kinds of questions swirl about the monarchy, the, the fact that um, Elizabeth II was was a beloved figure is now just more evident than ever before. We've been hearing it for years to the point where I suspect some people might have taken that for granted, but we've really had tangible demonstrations of that fact over the past 10 days. Michelle, you and I both reflected off the top here about some of the music that was really moving at the funeral. Oh, what were some of the beautiful. other notable moments from the funeral? Yeah, well, uh, there were uh, analysts on CBC were quick to note, and this was interesting, that there were a lot more women participating in this kind of event than you might have historically seen, for certainly for past uh, monarchy burials. Uh, we haven't seen any of those since the 50s, so obviously times have changed quite a lot since then. Uh, but that was a big one. Um, the procession leading out had some Canadian involvement in it. The RCMP and members of the Canadian Armed Forces were up near the front of the procession. So that was a nice moment for for Canadian involvement. Um, in the service itself, the service was, was, it was very streamlined and quite tightly scripted. Uh, there was an order of service that they stuck to the letter. I was following along as, as I watched it. That's the Brits the whole, for you. That's the yeah. Brits for you, straight and, and the whole the whole thing was it was done. The service itself was done in about an hour. And the procession leading out uh, only took an additional 20 to 30 minutes or so afterwards. And so the whole thing was really quite uh, concise and efficient. Who were some of the dignitaries in attendance? Uh, well, if we're talking about the Canadians, there was a pretty good delegation. Of course, the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his wife Sophie Grégoire Trudeau were there. They were sort of leading the delegation officially. Uh, Governor General Mary Simon and her husband were there. But we've also had a lot of other past governors general and prime ministers in the contingent from Canada today. They were all in the cathedral. So if we're talking about people like Michael Jean and David Johnston from the past governors general. In terms of previous prime ministers, we have Jean Chrétien, who was sharing some uh, pretty entertaining anecdotes yesterday, actually, about his interactions with the Queen. Uh, Kim Campbell was there, Paul Martin was there, and uh, Stephen Harper. So that, those are the Canadian sort of political entities that were part of the delegation. We had a few others, people who were invested in the Order of Canada quite recently, so people like gold medal swimmer Mark Tewksbury and Sandra Oh, the actress that so many are familiar with, and uh, Gregory Charles was, was part of this mix as well. So a fairly diverse delegation from Canada, to say nothing of, of the people I mentioned a little bit earlier, meaning the Mounties and the uh, Armed mm -hmm. Forces members who took part. Yeah, it was. there were a lot of people, including other world leaders as well. Oh yeah, tons of yeah. world leaders. Like, uh, like I, absolutely. Like, it was almost an unofficial meeting of them, Yeah, you know, the Australian Prime Minister, uh, President Biden from the U.S., um, all kinds of, of leaders from Europe and, and well beyond. Yeah, com, com, basically anybody who's part of the Commonwealth, their uh, their leader Absolutely. was there as well. Actually, Michelle, we have a, we have some sound here. You mentioned that Jean Chrétien uh, told some funny anecdotes yesterday. I've got a sound here of him reflecting on the Queen's legacy. It's a great example of the sense of duty and doing the job that you have to do for the public in, with great dignity. It's why she's respected in every part of the world. And U.S. President Joe Biden shared a memory of meeting the Queen. When the Queen had us to the castle for tea and we were joking, crimpets, she kept offering me more. I kept eating everything she put in front of me. But uh, <laughs> she was the same uh, in person as, she, as her image. Decent, honorable, and all about service. 
it is true that if the queen puts food in front of you, it's probably best to eat it. That's generally that's generally how you should behave yourself. Yes. Well played, Mr. President. Yeah, well played, Mr. <laughs> President. Uh, Michelle, I, I don't know how much of this came across the wire this weekend, but I was reading a lot about it this morning. The security logistics that went into something like this with having this many world leaders here oh. and only the United States allowed to handle their own security. Everybody else, they oh. were under Scotland Yard. I think there were a couple of other ones. Uh, there was another world leader. Um, the Japanese emperor, I believe, was also able to make his own security arrangements. But yeah, by and large, most of this fell to British officials. And you're right, there was a bit of discussion about this. Uh, our reporter on the ground in London, Morgan Lowry, she's been there for the past 10 days and has been doing just great, great work. So follow her for more details. But she wrote a little bit about the security logistics. And it's just a massive operation because you're not only dealing with all the world leaders coming in, but just all the nuts and bolts of putting on an event of this magnitude. And as we've talked about, we're talking about tens of thousands of people getting involved, days worth of queues and 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 logistics of getting all these services and processions going because there were many, many, many stops along the way here. So just an absolutely massive undertaking that was really decades in the works. They had an elaborate plan ready to go. Uh, this is not the kind of event that takes people by surprise, generally speaking, but, you know, security is a living moving target and always uh, lots to adapt to. So a huge operation that really has gone quite smoothly from where I'm sitting. Let's pull it one more thread here, Michelle, something the current Canadian Prime Minister reflected on yesterday. Justin Trudeau tossed cold water on the idea the Queen's death will change Canada's relationship with the monarchy. I know that what Canadians expect me to focus on is the economy, cost of living, inflation challenges, housing crisis, the need to step up in the fight against climate change and create good jobs into the future, continue work on reconciliation with Indigenous peoples. These are the things that Canadians have uh, told me are their priorities. These are the things I will continue to focus on. Even at a funeral, the stump speech is uh, never too far behind. Uh, Michelle, do you expect this conversation that, that's been brambling a little bit in the last couple of days to continue in the days and weeks after the funeral or in, regard, in regards to the Canadian relationship with the Crown? To some, in some circles, definitely I expect that to happen, but I really don't expect it. You've got me predicting, and I don't like to do that very much, but um, changing... Canada's relationship to the monarchy is a very, very procedurally fraught proposition. You'd have to have unanimous support from from the House, uh, from from Senate, I believe, as well. Uh, you, you're talking about reopening the Constitution, which is something that most political leaders don't want to touch. Every time poll. we do that, something goes wrong. Yeah, so th this is a, not an easy proposition. So if the, these kinds of conversations do happen, and especially in light of, of Justin Trudeau's remarks yesterday, and the, the general consensus in political circles from what I've heard, I don't think there's a lot of appetite to dive in full bore to this kind of thing. So uh, it might be happening, but much more muted than, than uh, perhaps someone might have been expecting. Michelle, you are officially the last word on Now with Dave Brown in regards to the Queen being put to rest. So thank you for your insight on the happenings over the course of the last couple of days. And today we appreciate it. And we'll talk to you on Friday. Thank you so much. Have a great week. That is Michelle McQuig, Weekend News Editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, we'll talk about AI language translators, artificial intelligence. What is the pros and the cons of utilizing an AI language translator. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your Morning Business Minute.
Here's hoping for a bounce back on Bay Street today after Canada's main stock index dropped more than 170 points last Friday to end the week. The S&P TSX Composite Index down 174 points to be exact at 19,386. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average was down 139 points at 30,822, while the Nasdaq Composite Index was down 104 points at 11,448. A quick check overseas now. Japan's Nikkei trading down this morning 308 points at 27,568. And over to Hong Kong ahead of closing, the Hang Seng was down over 200 points. Economists say the royal funeral for Queen Elizabeth is helping businesses' bottom lines in London with a bounty of well-wishers spending big bucks to be close. And Tuesday Statistics Canada will release its August reading for inflation. As for the loonie, it is trading this morning at 75.12 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's talk about language. No, not necessarily the words you use, but how you might be understood by someone else. You may have noticed some commercials for the new Google phones that offer real-time language translation, or maybe you've used Google Translate to switch the language on a communication like an email or a business letter. I've even seen some Facebook posts that were automatically translated into English. It's pretty cool, and it feels inclusive, but is it really? And what are some of the broader implications with this artificial intelligence technology? Denis Boudreau is the founder of Inclusive Communication and has some thoughts on this. Hey, good morning, Denis. Good morning. Good to see you again. Nice to hang out with you as well. So, Denis, let's start with a general question. What kind of experience have you had with automated translation? Uh, well, as you may have picked up over the years, uh, I have a bit of an accent because I am French speaking. So English is a second language. So translation services have been something that is part of my life for as long as they've been around. Um, I started working uh, m- mostly like uh, almost inclu- inclusively in English uh, about 10, 11 years ago. Until at that point, my English wasn't all that great. So I relied on those services extensively at the beginning as I was just building my own vocabulary and everything. So I can, I can go back 10 years and tell you that the services that we had back then were nowhere near what they are today. So of course, as everybody knows, these services have definitely uh, improved over the over time. And, and they've actually reached a point where they're impressive, uh, to say the least. Yeah, along those lines, especially as we're looking at some of the the more modern products, do you find the translation is pretty good slash accurate? I, I think so. I, I mean, I mean, it's not perfect, of course, and I, I don't think that we're at a point where you know translate professional translators can can be very concerned about their job. Though, arguably, a couple of years down the road, you know, it's probably one of the jobs that will that will eventually disappear. It won't be needed anymore. But uh, but to this point, it is it is good enough that it probably gets you like 85% of the way there, 80, 85% of the, of the way there. Um, I, I would never, I use them, like I said, I use them weekly, if not almost daily, but I never just, you know, translate something through Google Translate or DeepL, for instance, and then just leave it as is. Like I'll always tweak it a little bit because it doesn't quite sound um, human, so to speak, but uh, but it's really close. So much like much like other aspects that we've discussed before, like uh, you know automated captions in in, uh, in videos and YouTube, for instance, 
those things are get you quite a bit of the way there, but not completely uh, all the way through uh, just yet. But they're, they're, they're pretty good at this point. They're really good. You mentioned the way that YouTube is now offering up some automated captions for people who might be hard of hearing or deaf. If we do apply an accessibility or disability lens to these automated translators, what do you think the potential is? Well, I'll caveat this whole answer by saying that, again, you know, captions or translations, if you only rely on the automated services, these uh, artificial intelligence algorithms and, you know, all this automation, you're not going to get a or, or provide a service that is equivalent to one that would have been created by humans who are competent at that particular skill. So having said that, definitely the, uh, the, the potential is there for sure. And uh, when you look at it from the perspective of, of an accessibility lens, there is a lot of potential when it comes to translations, for instance. As an example, um, well, I'll, let's just start with my own experience. As I was growing my skill set with English, so I, um, I would rely on these, these uh, services when I didn't quite understand a sentence that somebody said. For instance, let's say I'm watching a video or a, I'm, I'm reading through a document and I want to make sure that I really understand what the, pe the person is talking about. I would use translations to do that and I would basically use my own ability to connect the dots to make it make sure that I understand. So for someone who is not as skilled in that other language but needs that content, there's there's this notion of access that definitely comes into play in in being able to rely on a uh, reliable service that will translate the information in your own language in a way that is reliable. Um, when you look at it from the perspective of how these different technologies can sort of add up to one another, um, very quickly it becomes interesting from an accessibility standpoint. Again, if you're thinking, let's say you're thinking about a like a live presentation, whether it's on is virtual or on site, if you have services around that can allow you to translate that content in your own language almost in real time, like maybe like with a almost like a bit of a second or so of a delay, then you can listen to what the people uh, people are saying, but and then have that translation happening in your own language almost instant uh, automatically. And, and that also breaks down barriers for people, for sure. So, so there's a lot of potential, not so much from that perspective of, of accessibility, like for that particular disability, though, though arguably, I mean, if you think about someone who has a, uh, like a traumatic brain injury, for instance, or, or anxiety or ADHD and struggles with either focusing or memorizing what's going on, or someone with obsessive compulsive disorders, for instance, who might get caught up on a particular thing that was said and then has a hard time processing what comes after, having the information translated into your own language removes that barrier, um, the language barrier itself. So mm. all of those things contribute to a more inclusive experience ultimately for that person if that person doesn't is not a native speaker of, of that language. Denny, I'm always fascinated in the way that technology can seemingly evolve so quickly. I can think about just access to internet in my life that started in 1996 that required a big old computer to get you onto through a, through a pretty shaky phone line at a pretty slow speed. And now we sit here 26 years later and just that that technology is now a supercomputer in my pocket, right? That I think about the way in which that happened so quickly that it blows me away. And I feel like we're really there with 
artificial intelligence, that it really entered the chat in, say, about 2014 or 2015 as being something that was mainstream. And here we sit today with people talking into their phones and having the phones speak out what they said in a different language to somebody else. Where do you think we're going with AI right now relative to where we've been the last 10 years? So Babel Tower comes to mind, I guess. Uh, so, so the whole idea of of being able to talk to someone. I mean, this this dream that we've seen in sci-fi for so long. I mean, for as long as I've been around. I mean, I guess. But this idea that language will no longer be a barrier and you could speak to anyone through a translator, like an automated translator, we're, we're pretty much there today. Um, there's a lot of applications out there that do stuff like this that are getting better and better by the day. And, um, and yeah, the potential is there to basically break down the barriers between between people uh, when it comes to language. So where are we headed with that? I mean, the sky's the limit, I would say, because if you think of all the different ways in which the technology can be used for you know, bettering our experiences as human beings uh, interacting in society, I mean, barriers are coming down. That's basically what it comes down to. The, I, I'm thinking, like for instance, so allow me to be a little po- political here, um, as I've done a couple of times before. But you know, in Quebec here, we have the the this new law about in, about uh, French being uh, mandatory and 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 pretty much dominant over everything, and and it it creates a certain level of stress, of course, for English uh, English anglophones working living living in Quebec, because if the content is only going to be available to you in French, then that creates a barrier. But through technologies like this, we can at least hope that over time, the um, that barrier won't be as big of a deal because you could always be serviced in French and then have the information translated to you, and then you could translate it back in English and then provide something that will be a lot better than it would have been if you only relied on your own skill set as a non-native speaker again in that particular case. Mm-hmm. So there is potential to to help with you know, social services and different things that people need uh, from a from a government standpoint, for instance. But on the web, um, you know, we we know already know it's it's a pretty obvious fact that you know English is the is the driving uh, language on the web in general. There's a lot more data, content, information available in English than there is in pretty much any other language, and sometimes more in English than a lot of other languages combined. So again. The data, the information is oftentimes in that available in that language only. So again, if you can rely more and more on these technologies, these services to translate that into your own language, and that translation becomes more uh, reliable, then you have access to a lot more information than you did before. And all of that empowers people to more inclusively participate in you know what society has to offer. And Denis, that leads me into the last question. I think you pretty much answered it slash alluded to it in there. But just to sort of work up as a summation thought here, you and I have talked quite a bit about how to make presentation more inclusive Mm -hmm. a few times in the last few months. And I think about the way in which best practices when it comes to both the work that you do in making communication and technology more inclusive, or even the way people with disabilities may interact with society, there are a lot of best practices that can be communicated that sometimes maybe fall on on other sides of walls or get siloed yeah. because, because what maybe works in the Netherlands can't be communicated quite efficiently to somebody in North America or what works in Thailand may not get communicated to someone in Australia. Do these kinds of technologies allow presenters to cast a wider net? 
I think they do, definitely. Probably not as much as they will eventually, but a couple of ideas come to mind. Uh, I mean, I, I'll, I'll take you back to this one experience that I've had probably around 2012 or so. Um, so I was, I was presenting at a conference in Paris, and uh, it's a pretty big, maybe the biggest uh, web conference that they have in, in the city um, still today. And uh, it's a big stage, and we have, uh, of course, we have sign language interpreters on the stage. So I'm doing my presentation, and I have this, uh, this uh, interpreter signing what I'm saying as I'm saying it. Behind me on the screen is, uh, well, on the screen, is, uh, is automated, uh, not automated, but, but uh, transcripts. So there's, there's a captionist that is translating, as, well, not translating, sorry, that is ca capturing the information as I'm saying it on the screen. In the um, in the back of the, the the amphitheater is someone who's simultaneously translating what I'm saying as I'm saying it, and then there are people in the room who have a headset and they're hearing my presentation, which was in French, in English, so that they could listen to it in that own language. That's that whole conversation is happening between four or five different people, try, like like bouncing from one people to another, to ultimately get into that person's ear in uh, probably less than a second or two in their own language. That was tw 10 years ago, basically. So now, like, we, we've, we've, we've got a couple, a couple of people in the middle of that, of that uh, transaction now, if you, so to speak. Um, because if you think about, just think about PowerPoint, for instance. Right now, you can go to PowerPoint, turn on uh, subtitles, and then decide or, or define your own, the, the speaker's language. So let's say in this case, we would have PowerPoint open, speaker would be in English, and I could ask for the translations, the, the 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 captions to be in French. And PowerPoint would use uh, would use Microsoft's AI to translate the information as it's being spoken. So in that old um, you know dynamic again, you have an AI that is basically listening to what I'm saying, capturing the words, and then another one's right, working right behind it to translate not the words themselves, but the sentences or the blocks of words, so that you don't lose context too much. And you get a very decent, um, automatically captioned and translated um, version of the content happening almost in real time. Like there's a bit of a like a split second maybe before the content actually shows on the screen. And we've tested that with English and French. One of my friends uh, is uh, is is Russian, and she was speaking. And, and though I don't speak Russian one bit, I know nada maybe. Um, <laughs> yet that, that's about it. Um, I don't even, I, anyway, yeah. So, um, and, and she, she was saying that it was pretty accurate also. And it, it comes down to the same exact thing as always, right? I mean, AI is only as smart as the amount of data that it receives. So again, because English is so prevalent, there's so much information that's available, the, uh, the algorithms learn really quickly. The whole machine learning thing that we keep hearing about, that comes in and then you know the, the, the data feeds it and it gets better and better. The more exposure to data that there is, the more reliable the services become. So, in a language that is not as common on the web, uh, then then you know that will take longer before it becomes reliable. But for languages that are mostly spoken in North America, for instance, it's uh, it, whether it's French, Spanish, or or any of the the more common languages that we have, uh, you know, it gets really good really quickly. And and on top of that, in terms of best practices. You know, if you uh, so some of the most common best practices that we think of, that we can think about when it comes to uh, helping your audience really get the information and, and be able to consume it 
at their own pace, given their own set of abilities. Um, you know, we always talk about the importance of sharing your content beforehand so that they can prepare. Like we would do that for a sign language interpreter so that they can you know, get a sense of what we're going to be talking about so that they can pre prepare a little bit. But going back to this example of someone with a, a traumatic brain injury, for instance, if it's hard to process information in real time because things are going a little too fast, if they've had a chance to get the documents beforehand, then they can better prepare for the event once it comes. And if that event happens to be in a different language again, they can use these translation services to be able to, to really understand in their own language what is about to be said, and then it makes the whole processing of the information on the, the, the day of that much easier. And same thing when it comes when 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 those documents are shared after the fact, because that would be another best practice to you know be generous with your content and share it with those who've participated. Um, being able to rely on these services again to translate the information that you've received in your own language to double check and or maybe validate your own understanding through these automated services can only bring more clarity to what you've uh, what you took part of in in that particular presentation. So those things are all going to help uh, tremendously. And again, it's, it's about barriers coming down between different languages, different, different cultures through the use of these technologies. But today it doesn't, it, you know, it's not, it's not the only, you, you can't rely only on that today, as it would be a better way to say it. But you know, a couple of years down the road, it's gonna be very, very, very accurate. Denis, you may not be able to tutor us in Russian, but we're always a little bit smarter when we're done talking to you. Thank you for this. You're very welcome. Yeah, take care. Denis Boudreau is the founder of Inclusive Communication. Coming up after the break, Amy Manti will review the Netflix romantic comedy, Wedding Season. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Amy Amanti is here to offer up a review of the Netflix movie Wedding Season. Good morning, Amy. Oh, good morning, Dave. So, Amy, tell me about Wedding Season. What's this romantic comedy all about? Okay, Wedding Season. Well, it probably is exactly what it sounds like to some extent. A movie about um, weddings. It could quite possibly be, uh, but I'll give you kind of the lowdown on that. So we're looking at two characters, our main uh, characters in this in this piece, who are Asha and Ravi, and they are pressured by their parents to find spouses. So these are both folks that are uh, of South Asian background. They are living in um, in America, so they're not living in India, um, and and so this culture of arranged marriages to them while they know about it because it's part of their tradition and, you know, their parents were uh, matched by arranged marriages. These two folks are very Americanized. You know, we've got independent women here. We've got uh, uh, folks that are sort of separating themselves from that sort of specific culture of, um, of arranged marriages. And of course, what I learned, which I thought was really interesting, was that wedding season in Indian culture is largely a place where you, because um, whole families come, where you bring daughters and sons that are sig sig single, I just about said signal, that are single to mingle uh, at weddings in order to 
you know, facilitate matches. So um, the these two parents have sort of coerced their children into going to every single wedding, and I think there's 23 of them in this season to try and make oh, a wow. match, and okay. a whole bunch of antics ensue. <laughs> so where would you play, place this in the spectrum of rom-com, from, say, the classic Harry Met Sally to some more uh, modern iterations, like, say, Wedding Crashers? Well, I would say that it's got more of a sweeter sentiment than something like Wedding Crashers. That was made to be a little bit like a slapstick kind of comedy thing, whereas this is not... I would, I'm not even sure that I would classify this as a, as a rom-com. Although there's some comedy moments, it's really more of a, I think, it's more of a look at, um, at romance through a cultural lens. That is not my cultural lens, of course, uh, as, a, as a white settler. Um, and so, you know, I think some of the humor is very much related to Indian culture. So folks who um, identify as Indian or South Asian might actually get that, uh, whereas I, I might have missed that. Um, and I think that that's, that's totally why I liked this film is because it wasn't your typical white rom-com. You know, we're setting it in a very different way than what we see white typical rom-coms to be. And so there's a different, uh, a different expectation. And I thought, well, as I was watching this, it felt a little almost hallmarky to me, like a hallmark movie of the week, but it was a lovely way of being able to experience a culture from an outside you mentioned that there's going to be a strong multicultural push in this film do you think the audio description rose to that moment i know you've had some trouble with audio description when it comes <laughs> to multiculturalism in the past well you know what it's it's so interesting to me dave and just as an aside i will say that yesterday i was watching this piece on ctv news here in canada where they were interest uh, interviewing the two uh, folks, one is a black woman and one is a, a South Asian woman who wrote this movie called, um, uh, oh shoot, I'm going to forget the name of it. Um, but it's about Karens. It's about Karens, which are, are air quotes, a bunch of uh, white women. That's what uh, many folks in the black community and people of color community call white white women is Karens. And deconstructing Karen is what it's called. And they're at a dinner party and it's talking about how white women um are filling the, the, the are for, uh, facilitating white su white supremacy essentially, um, and what they had talked about is exactly what I've been talking about in audio description, which is that anytime we see characters in the, not characters but people or characters in the news or in books or whatever, they're always defined as of color unless they are not of color. So again, when you're white, you're just a woman, and when you're uh, not a white woman, you're a black woman or an Asian woman, that kind of thing. Um, and that is, a, in, in their opinion, the height of white supremacy, one of the heights of white supremacy racism. Um, and I had never looked at it that way before. I just thought that it was not equitable. Um, so my thought, my thoughts are changing on this. And I would say that this audio description, it's a long, long form into saying that this audio description, I thought did an excellent job of bringing in that diversity description. So I didn't feel like one race was tokenized over another, because the idea here is white people should also be racialized people as well in terms of having their race described, right? So that we're not defaulted and everybody else is the other. Let's come back to wedding season. What was your overall mm -hmm. impression of it? Did you like it? Would you recommend it? You know, I thought that it had some really lovely things going for it. Um, it's got a really lovely set of characters. Uh, it's got a really interesting plot line in terms of how these characters are having their marriages arranged. And it's not a, a big spoiler because I'm sure that you can imagine that uh, as two Americanized uh, young people, 
that aren't interested in arranged marriages. They have their parents in the background that are facilitating this idea. And so both parents on both sides uh, have set up dating profiles without their children knowing and are trying to match make, make them on dating profiles. So you've got, you know, this 30 something woman who's got her 50 or 60 something year old mom writing a dating profile through the mom's lens about, oh my, you know, my daughter loves to cook and clean. And then, you know, the daughter's like, no, I have this, like, I'm a career woman, right? So, and, and on the other side of, of the man, the, the, the opposite is so interesting because it's the father that sets up the dating profile, not the mother. So we've got a mother on one side and a father on the other side. And, um, and the two of them kind of meet accidentally at a wedding and decide that they're going to fake their relationship um, so that gets their parents off their back. Okay. Uh, okay. I but see. They fall in love. I, well, the, the, there it is. There it is. There's the big spoiler alert right there. It's not a spoiler. I, we know they I, fall we in love. We know what's going on. <laughs> Amy, we've only got about 45 seconds here. Okay. So actually, instead of me asking you out of 10, because I think you just sort of clearly gave sort of your that. general vibe on this, give me 40 seconds on whether or not the Amy Amanti scale slides when you're watching something on Netflix <laughs> versus going to a movie theater. Um sure that it slides i think i approach everything kind of the same way which is um i like to go into things without any specific expectations um i want to just sort of witness it for the first time how i would without you know thinking too hardly about it before i get into it and then i think about things like how developed are the characters um you know what is the plot line interesting or is it something we've seen over and over and over again for this one you know we could say we've seen this kind of thing over and over but the interesting twist is that we normally see it through a very white colonized lens and now we're seeing it through a very authentic lens amy so i say just enjoy your movies that's well put have a great day we'll talk to you later you got it, Dave. That's Amy Amanti with a review of Wedding Season, which you can find on Netflix. Coming up after the break, I have the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, September the 19th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Mark Aflalo got his hands on Apple's new iPhone 14. I do believe he's going to give us a little bit of a demo and talk about what he likes about it. And the federal government is working on a new retrofitting project in Winkler, Manitoba. Jim Crisco has details on that story when he joins us to wrap up the show. But let's begin this hour with the regional news update. Not a lot of hard news to share with you from over the weekend across the regions, but certainly a couple of interesting stories to pass along. Rock walls that line the shores of British Columbia's Gulf Islands are being restored to their traditional indigenous use as oceanside gardens that can trap clams, mussels, and other seafood. Nicole Norris, a First Nations Partnership Coordinator with the BC government, says the ancient sea gardens are much more than indigenous heritage sites. They asked for my opinion about about these sites and they asked me what I see it as, what I like the process to be deemed as so that these would be heritage sites. And I said, no, these are active management sites. With a helping hand, these beaches can become extremely productive. One of the traditional sea garden sites is located on Russell Island, which is just south of Salt Spring Island. 
into the prairies. A Saskatchewan community spent 10 years fundraising for it, and over the weekend, the South Bend Co-op Centre in Assiniboia officially opened. The new facility has an arena, a walking track, a teen centre, a multi-purpose gym, and a 9-metre climbing wall. It also features a massive tailgate plaza with a 7.6-metre outdoor screen and speakers that will be used to showcase sporting events as a public good. The project cost over $15 million with the Assiniboia Civic Improvement Association fundraising $4 million of it. Over to Ontario, the city of Burlington says a seventh person in the city has been attacked by a coyote, or a coyote if you will. City officials said yesterday the latest attack happened at the home on Lakeshore Road near Tuck Creek around noon on Saturday. One person was taken to hospital for treatment after a coyote, or coyote, bit her knee. The attacks have prompted the city to activate the crisis management team to deal with the incidents. And then over to the Atlantic. One of the biggest road hockey tournaments in the Maritimes, the Because You Care Cup, was back in Member 2 Nova Scotia over the weekend, even The event is one of the biggest fundraisers for the Cape Breton Regional Hospital Foundation. The foundation's manager, Caitlin McDonald, says more than 600 people competed. McDonald says the funds will go towards supporting people who are traveling to get their health care, patient programs, and equipment. And of course, that's the story that prompted our daily poll question, which you can find at AMI Audio on Twitter. No, no, that's $2. That's $2. Fine for me. At Accessible Media on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. So now because I got that wrong, it's two more dollars in the bucket that we have here collecting money every time I make a mistake or someone makes a mistake writing in the script that uh, we're going to donate to charity at the end of the month. You know, you do a little bit of branding switcheroo around the show over the course of the last three weeks. Still have some muscle memory in my mouth in regards to how I throw to the polls So that's two more dollars for me. I think we're up to 18 or 20 bucks now in the bucket for the charity that's going to be a TBD, although we're starting to circle around it. There is chatter, but I'm not going to start shouting out charities just yet, which is all the more reason as to why you should chime into our daily poll at Accessible Media or at Accessible Media Inc. So Accessible Media on Twitter, Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, where we're asking you, what's your favorite kind of fundraiser? And we're also asking you if you're going to chime in, you're going to take the time to vote, you might as well shout out a charity or nonprofit you like in the comments, and then maybe the uh, Now with Dave Brown fine bucket will go to uh, make a donation to that charity that you shout out in the comments. So take that extra step and uh, shout out a charity that you love. Let's bring in Brock Richardson. He's here for the Sports Chat. Brock, in the age of the internet, there is no such thing as a Friday news dump. So the Winnipeg Jets are not going to get away with revealing that they will not have a captain this year. Yeah, this uh, came as a surprise to a lot of the people that have uh, their, you know, beat in Winnipeg. And and I'm kind of surprised by it, too. I think Blake Wheeler, you know, six seasons as captain, I do understand that New head coach Rick Bonus does have have his ability to make changes. I totally am fine with that. I just think that, you know, somebody that's been doing it for six years, it's a long time. And people start to look up to the things you do and, and don't do. So I was very surprised. And for me, I, I like I said, I understand it. It's just a bit of a surprise for me. What I am not surprised at is Blake Wheeler's professionalism and he's been saying look I don't need a captaincy 
to uh, play hockey, I can still lead by example. That's good. And those are the words you need to be saying in, in times like these. But I do have to wonder, Dave, how much this really does kind of, you know, hurt him a little bit in the sense of like, I've I've been the captain for as long as I have and now it's just gone. And I'm curious your thoughts as to whether you think there's more to what he's saying or if you believe in what Blake Wheeler's saying and that it's not really that important. It seems like a pretty clear indication the Winnipeg Jets are about to undertake some kind of rebuild. To what extent, we don't know. I think it pretty clearly indicates that Blake Wheeler's days are going to be numbered in Winnipeg, considering the money on that contract and his age, if there is any kind of rebuild happening. It does seem like he'd be a candidate to get moved out as to whether or not anyone will take that contract is a whole different kettle of fish. Brock, this is not necessarily brand new. We saw the San Jose Sharks do this a couple of years ago, taking the captain's C away from uh, Joe Thornton and Patrick Marlowe, both <laughs> over the course of a couple of years. And for what it's worth, after San Jose did that, the team kind of went into a tailspin. So sometimes you have to be careful about what you ask for when you're going for a, quote, <laughs> leadership right. shakeup. Right. And that's the thing is that even though Blake Wheeler is saying the right thing, and as you point out, sometimes it can work for the better and sometimes it can work for the the worst, and we have uh, some examples where it didn't exactly go for the better. I like Winnipeg as an organization. I think they have a a good team, some good pieces, but as you mentioned, they are kind of headed towards this uh, rebuild phase. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of impact this takes on the organization as a whole. Yeah. Anyway, going the whole year likely without a captain. So uh, teams have done that before too. It's not it's not a brand new concept, but it's one that seems a bit strange when that team is as laden with veteran players as they are. It speaks to uh, maybe a general feel of culture change with that hockey team. And we're only a couple of weeks away from the start of the NHL season. It's pretty it's pretty exciting times, Brock, as uh, hockey is indeed in the pipeline. It is for sure, and and I like watching Canadian hockey, so I'm looking forward to it, and we'll we'll see. And and I have to uh, split my loyalties around some Canadian teams. <laughs> watching my beloved Maple Leafs is sometimes painful. So. Speaking of what we can or sometimes can't watch on Canadian TV, I was here on my soapbox on Friday talking about I can't find this Miami and Texas A&M game that's taking place at 9 p.m. Eastern time on Saturday night. It's not on TSN. It's not on ABC. It's not on Fox. I can't find this game. Well, turns out I should be living with Brock Richardson because he's got the ultra good cable package. You took in some of what turned out to be a rather lackluster game on Saturday night. It was. It was a lackluster game. Uh, Texas uh, beat Miami 17-9. I thought it was interesting because the storyline heading into this game was that uh, there were four missing players due to uh, curfew violation for Texas. And then we had two players who had uh, target hits, uh, uh, veteran uh, Mr. Richardson. Love the namesake there for sure. I I just thought that Miami didn't really take advantage of their opportunities. They got down the field four times with nothing more than a field goal. And I I really question the decision-making of the Miami uh, coaching staff when you're down by two scores and you decide to go for a field goal late in the fourth bit of a confusing thing there for me but overall it was a lackluster uh game but still enjoyed it as you guys well know i'm just sort of getting my feet wet in the college world but uh really glad i took in that late game i was a little groggy sunday morning but (laughs) here here we are 
9, 9 p.m. Eastern is way too late for a marquee game to start, even if it's taking place in East Texas. Way, way too late for a marquee game to get started. And the big disappointment there, Brock, is the Miami quarterback, Tyler Van Dyken, is likely a first-round quarterback taken this year in the NFL draft. He can't have games like that against high-level competition where they just go totally constipated in the red zone. Uh, as you can tell, I may have found a way to get my eyeballs onto this game. Uh, very disappointing in the red zone by Miami's offense, and that's something that may or may not be held against him as we move towards the draft process here with five to six guys who are all looking like first-round picks. So that was a rough one for Tyler Van Dyke and uh, maybe a good one for Texas A&M, but it really feels like in both cases this, this game ends up hurting both programs and neither of whom are really now going to be in the national title picture. Brock, let's stay with football here for a little bit longer. It was a pretty wild day on the NFL front. There were a bunch of fourth quarter comebacks. I'm curious, what's your big takeaway from yesterday's day of action? I have a takeaway for a game for sure. I think uh, Miami looked really, really good at the later parts of the game. They were down by... 21 points and uh you know it was really great Jalen Waddle played really really well um you know there his his speed along with Tyreek Hill can really be dominant I think that that's going to be the thing that sort of helps the Miami Dolphins I think this comeback makes it good for two Tua to to kind of learn his way through. I think Baltimore kind of shot themselves in the foot by kind of being more aggressive, um, and they didn't want to allow the uh, short game because they didn't. I guess they didn't trust in Tua's arm. Well, Tua showed you. Look, I can throw the football, and I think that's only helpful for uh, Miami uh, for sure. The, I'll get your thoughts and then I'll move on to my second piece. What did you think of the uh, the game? The confidence that Miami can get from that win, erasing a 21-point lead for the first time that any NFL team has done since 2006 inside of a fourth quarter is very, very impressive. As you say, the big criticism of their quarterback, Tua Tungavailoa, is uh, one that he cannot get the ball downfield. Well, he, he got the ball downfield over and over <laughs> and over again in the fourth quarter yesterday. That's a big confidence builder for Miami. They're going to be in tough next week against Buffalo. They're maybe going to be in tough in week four against the Cincinnati Bengals, although the Bengals now 0-2. That, that's a problem, a Super Bowl hangover through and through for those guys from Sin City, Cincinnati. But this is a big win for Miami. They were going to struggle to get to 2-2 two and two through four games. They now have two wins in the book. It's all gravy till they get to a very easy point of their schedule. As a Dolphins fan, Brock, I'm feeling pretty darn good today. But you said you've got another big takeaway from yesterday's action. Yes. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, the San Francisco young quarterback, Trey Lance, has a broken leg. Uh, watched it, watched it, it live. It, it was ugly. It, it looked really, really nasty. Like, you saw it live, and then when you saw it in slow motion, you're like, yeah, your leg's not supposed to do that. So um, that's, that's a big loss uh, when you're turning to a – a quarterback like uh, Jimmy Garoppolo in replace and, and their third string is not quite identified. They do have ideas, but it's not been identified uh, for next week. So that's kind of a, uh, a big loss. However, they did win 27 seven in that game. So we'll see if Mr. Garoppolo can uh, continue to do that. Uh, Green Bay had a solid bounce back game against the bears I'm not sure I believe in Green Bay. I will see Aaron Rodgers. I'm not 
quite sold on him. I don't know. I have to see a little bit more of him uh, to be able to say whether he's going to be able to do it this year. He's in the same category as Tom Brady, though. I never bet against Aaron mm-hmm, Rodgers. Mm-hmm. He seems to be able to pull it out every once in a while when needed. So lots of good stuff went on in the NFL uh, yesterday. Yeah, I'm still totally riveted. The NFL, just it, it, it does something to me, Brock. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it does something to me in a way that just uh, sticks it right to my veins. You mentioned Jimmy Garoppolo. I'd say there's two things we know about Jimmy G. One, he's an above-average quarterback. Two, so handsome. So handsome. If if, if he was less handsome, he would be a less average quarterback. But that's where he is right now. Brock, thank you for this. Tomorrow we will deep dive into the baseball world. We will indeed. Thanks so much. That is Brock Richardson. He was here for the sports chat. Let's bring in Alex Smythe for the National Weather Update. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. It's mainly cloudy with the chance of showers and a frost advisory is in effect with a high of 13. Charlottetown, PEI. It's mainly sunny and a high of 17. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's mainly sunny and a high of 18. In Quebec City, Quebec, it's sunny becoming a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 15. In Toronto, Ontario, It's mainly cloudy with a chance of rain and possible thunderstorms with a high of 26. In St. John, uh, in in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's mainly cloudy with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a high of 20. In Brandon, Manitoba, it's mainly sunny in the morning, then a few showers and possible thunderstorms expected later with a high of 21. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it is a mix of sun and clouds with possible rain and thunderstorms as well, and a high of 21. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy with rain expected again this afternoon and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour with a high of 16. In Red Deer, Alberta, the showers are expected to start this morning and continue into the afternoon, and again, wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour, and 12 is the high. Up in Whitehorse, Yukon, It's mainly sunny and a high of 15. In Kelowna, BC, sunshine and a high of 21. And finally in Vancouver, BC, sunshine as well and a high of 20. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. We'll talk to you a little bit later in the hour. Coming up next, Mark Aflalo has his hands on an Apple iPhone, i14, the new iPhone. Who's got it? Mark's got it. But first, TikTok is launching a new feature. Here's Chuck Sievertson with Tech Trends. TikTok now sends users a notification prompting them to snap a picture using their phone's front and rear camera. So TikTok launched TikTok now, uh, which is functionally the most one-to-one B-real clone that we've seen so far. Jack Appleby writes the social media newsletter Future Social. He says TikTok now works much the same way as the popular app Be Real. Both are designed for spur-of-the-moment unplanned posts, a response to the heavily curated, often staged posts common on other platforms. The call for authenticity in social content, everyone just needed a place to feel like they were actually seeing their friends, which really helped Be Real who's positioned themselves as the authentic social network. Instagram and Snapchat. 
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. When new technology drops, you can rarely to if ever count on me to get my hands on it. I am a lagger, a Luddite. I'm not ahead of the game. I'm behind the game. But when it comes to technology, someone who's always ahead of the game is Mark Aflalo of Double Tap TV. He's one of the hosts of that show, which you can find Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV. And you can find Mark in Montreal. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Mr. Brown. How are you? I'm well, Mark. I heard a rumor, and I hope Uh-oh. it's more than a rumor because our whole segment's based around this, that you Uh-oh. got your hands on Apple's new iPhone 14. And, of course, there but- are different variations here. Which one did you get your hands on? Well, right now, uh, in front of me, I'm holding up to the camera here, I've got an iPhone 14, which is the kind of entry-level 14 over here. We've got an iPhone 14 Pro in my hand, well, the box anyway, Mm -hmm. and a Pro Max in my hand over here. And not only are we going to talk about these devices, Mr. Brown, but we're going to we're going to actually unbox a couple of them and talk about the features and what makes them different and all that fun stuff. OK, OK. I like that. A little unboxing with Marco Flalo. So yeah. I, I don't know which one you want to start with, but why don't we just jump into whatever you want to what you want to show us first? Well, let, let, let's talk about the iPhone 14 itself, not the Pro or the Pro Max. I'm going to switch the camera to the overhead view here, and we're going to open this while I actually talk about it. Now, this one's available in a bunch of different colors. It's blue, purple, midnight, starlight, red, um, lots of really cool colors. This is called the starlight color, which is kind of like a white back, and the sides are almost like this champagne side, which is pretty cool. And then when you move over to the Pros, and I, I've got one actually because I'm using it, uh, the Pro and the Pro max this is a pretty cool one too because it's available in deep purple gold silver and space black and the color i'm holding up to the camera now is a space black which is kind of like a matte blackish gray on the back and on the sides it's got this really shiny super uh fingerprint uh fingerprint showing sides but you know what it makes no difference because we we have a case right so we don't actually you know care about fingerprints and stuff that you don't don't gunk it up with prints when you have a nice case on there Exactly. We well, you know, we we talk about you know, put the case on. No one really cares about it. And I, I guess the thing to talk about, really, amongst all of this stuff, is you know what makes them different, right? Because you look at the 14 itself, and I'm holding the 14 up to the camera here, and you'll notice right off the bat on the back of this is a pretty similar camera bump to what was on previous generation phones. So on the 13, it's pretty much identical. I've got a 13 Pro here, and you can see when I put a holding side by side, you can kind of see, but they they uh, they protrude about the same as the previous generation, which is kind of interesting. And that's because there's only two cameras There's a, a, a on the 14. It's a, a 12 megapixel. I'll go back to the overhead shot here. We've got a 12 megapixel main camera, and we've got an ultra wide camera. And we've got two times optical zoom or, or 2x optical zoom, which is what they call it these days. Whereas on the Pro, the camera bump is extremely large. I'm talking about large. Like when you're putting this on a table, it's gonna it's gonna bounce back and forth. Why is it so big? Well, we've got a 48 megapixel camera on the top left-hand corner of the back. We've got a telephoto lens and an ultra-wide lens, all up to about six times optical zoom. And that 48 megapixel camera, I'll try to kind of shimmer it to the light here so you can see it. Um, it, it is gigantic. Oh it my is gigantic, gosh. and it, yeah. 
it is gigantic and it takes incredible, incredible photos, which is pretty cool. So again, what's different? So when I'm holding them side by side, you'll notice that the 14 itself and the 14 Pro are physically the same size. They're actually a bit heavier on the Pro because it's obviously got the camera system and a little bit better battery in there, but physically they're the same size. When you look at them, the same thickness, but I am telling you in my hands, the 14 is so much lighter than the Pro, which is kind of cool. On the 14 Pro, you've got an always-on display, which is really, really neat. It means that when you put your phone to kind of sleep, it kind of sits there. I'm holding it up right now, and it dims the screen down to one hertz. So that allows you to have text on the screen that's still readable when you glance to it. And when you want to wake it up, you just tap it, and it kind of comes to life. No, I don't like that. I don't like that. I want, I want, like when I all? turn my phone off, I want my <laughs> phone off. I don't need it shimmering and shining in my room or distracting my friends from having meaningful conversations <laughs> with me at the dinner table. Come on, Dave. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, 14 <laughs> has the same chip as last year's 13, the A15 chip, um, whereas the uh, the Pro has the A16 chip. And the only other place where they really differ, honestly, is in storage, okay? The Pro and the Pro Max come in 128 gigabytes, 256, 512, and one terabyte. Oof. And the 14 has the same thing, but not one terabyte. And the reason they have a one terabyte option on the Pro, Dave, is because the Pro could take... Um, photos up to incredible sizes with that 48 megapixel camera, but also on the video side, it records in what's called Apple RAW, which is an extremely versatile file format for video, allows you to color grade it and really do, you know, fun things. And, and the last difference, honestly, at the end of the day is um, the, the Pro is 0 0.03 inches higher and it has 2,000 nits of peak brightness. That means outside in sunlight, you can still see what's on the screen, whereas on the actual 14 itself, it's not going to be there. Oh, sorry, okay. and I forgot one other thing, one other thing. The 14 has the notch at the top. The 14 Pro has a new dynamic island, which is what they're calling this thing. I'm going to hold it up to the camera here. You'll see it's like this pill-shaped thing at the top of the phone that they call the dynamic island, which, by the way, is actually comprised of two cutouts, which it's hard to see, honestly, even with the naked eye, but there's actually two cutouts there. And the two cutouts, they join together with software to make it this integrated kind of dynamic island. I love when they give names to stuff like this. It's so entertaining. Mark, you mentioned something right off the top there. You threw a lot of numbers and names <laughs> and things at us and pixelated cameras and all this interesting stuff that smart people understand. Me, I'm dumb. Mark, I need you to tell me why in particular there was one model that you said, this is the one I have in use. Why did you choose the one model in particular to have as your sort of, I don't want to say day-to-day -day phone because I know you switch around a lot, but it sounds like you picked one of these models to be your day-to-day. -day. Why? I did. I picked the Pro and not the Pro Max because I've been using a Pro Max before and I found it pretty big. I found the reach kind of hard, and, and I'll, I'll even show you right here. This is my old phone here in my hand, in my left hand. I'm going to try to reach the other side, and I've got pretty big hands, and I can't reach the other side of that phone. And whether I'm using my left hand or I'm switching to my right hand now, I cannot reach the other side. Whereas the Pro, the current Pro, not the Pro Max, so we're talking about a 6.1 inch, which is what's in my hand now, versus the 6.7 inch, I can easily reach across. I can yeah. type a lot easier. And yeah, I don't have as much screen real estate, but it just shrinks things down a bit. So maybe 
maybe when I'm like, I don't know, in a couple of years from now, when my eyesight really goes, I'll want that real estate. But now for now, it's going to be my go to. <laughs> and I have to let you guys know that, of course, like every good person here, when you when you have customized your screen and I'm going to I'm going to wake my screen up, I'm going to customize it and show you to you. Um, there's there's no better thing to do than to put Dave Brown as your background. Oh, and that's what I have as the background of my phone. Look at that. Dave Brown is the background. <laughs> and of course, when you get a new phone to make sure to remind yourself to download the AMI TV app for Google well, or Android course, as well first, once you're through the app that's store. That's the first thing I downloaded. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's, it's, it's very important you download that when given the opportunity. Uh, Mark, I'm telling you. I, I, you mentioned the dynamic island. And, I'm, yes. and I, I understand that maybe it's something of an aesthetic change. Is there a functionality that that offers to people there's a bunch of functionality to it and i'm going to switch back to the overhead camera i'm going to give you the example in a couple different apps and the one that i like the most is music so i'm here in the music app i'm going to hit play on a, on a nice metallica song because who doesn't like metallica and and when you actually go back to your home screen once you're playing music number one notifications end up popping up in the dynamic island itself so let me go back to the home screen here sorry i'm hiding my password don't so don't show it. don't show national don't television show pass. your password that would yeah, be, exactly. be trouble so the, what happened now is on the dynamic island, it added a little bubble on the top right-hand corner, and it shows me the album artwork of what's playing. And when I put the volume up, for example, it actually changes what's displaying on the top here. And if I click on it, I'm telling you this phone, if I click on it or I click into a different app, you can see almost like a VU meter going. There's a little meter going of, of music playing. Again, hard to kind of see, but it, it's, it's up there. So it gives you, from a first glance, what's kind of going on in your device. You'll also notice on my screen right now, in the top left-hand corner, in the dynamic island, I've got that little kind of blue location arrow. That means something is actually using my location currently, which is a cool indication. So they're putting a lot of notifications, and a lot of the notifications that used to pop up at the bottom of the screen over, over here now pop up in the dynamic island. I'd say give my phone a call right now so you could see it, but we don't want to do that. On the lock screen, for example, you could see the phone is locked and when i turn my face here to go face id it unlocks immediately and everything displays in that dynamic island and listen people are actually playing really cool games with this as a game actually let me demo this game for you this is a pretty cool one it's called where is it i gotta find the game hit the island this is someone who just came out with an app really quickly and what they allow you to do it's like a it's like a pong game so there's a little ball going and as you hit the dynamic island it actually gives you points. So you bounce the ball back on the bottom, you slide it left or right, probably an extremely inaccessible game, by the way. Um, but when you hit the actual dynamic island, it gives you points and you can actually you know, score some, some fun <laughs> games. People are putting apps out where they have little animals running around the dynamic island. There's lots of really cool things that they're doing with the dynamic island and it's gonna, it's gonna evolve. And I, and I did speak to Steven Scott over the weekend. We talked all about accessibility with the dynamic island and it is accessible because all the notifications are going to. So the same way you had your notifications before, they're now appearing on the dynamic island. Okay, so really all cool right. stuff. Uh, yeah. Mark, we're a little tight for time here. Okay. But I know you also got your hands on the Apple Watch Ultra and the AirPods Pro 2. Uh, do you want to do loud talking about that yet? Not a lot talking about that yet. Uh -oh. That was a tease. Okay, you know what? You know what? That's $2 for Paul Daniel then because he put that in the script and boom, that's it. Two more dollars on Paul's no, phone actually, bucket now. I put it in the script, but I wanted to tease you because next week we're going to have our hands on the new AirPods Pro 2 and the new Apple Watch Ultra. $2 fine for you then. I expect the e-transfer later today. <sighs> uh, Mark, speaking of teasing, what's coming up on Double Tap TV? Talking all about the brand new Envision glasses. Very, very cool stuff. Uh, Stephen Scott and Sean Priest are on the show this week talking all about them. And uh, Sean had a really cool experience with them hands-on.
amazing. Hey, Mark, thank you for this, man. We appreciate it, and uh, I'll, I'll send you an email about those uh, about those uh, $2 fines that are going into the fine Yeah, I'll send that right now. When there's a mistake in the script now, everybody's responsible. We're all accountable. I take full responsibility, Dave. <laughs> That's why we like you. Mark, have a great day. You too. That's Mark Aflalo. He's one of the hosts of Double Tap TV, which you can find Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv, or, or... Like we talked about during the segments, you can find episodes on demand on AMI.ca or inside the AMI-tv app for both Google and Android. Coming up after the break, we'll bring together the roundtable with Ramya Nazreen and Alex. Something very fun is happening in Germany. We're not going to have a full-blown Oktoberfest conversation, but we're going to use that as, let's call it a jumping-off point. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. If I'd really planned this out in advance, I would have given Eliza some polka music to play to come into this segment. But hence... We don't really do planning around now with Dave Brown. It's improvisational. So before I bring in Ramya Nizreen and Alex, here's a little news story to set up what we're talking about. The beer is flowing at Munich's world-famous Oktoberfest. Karen Chamas brews up this report. Excited crowds rushed through the gates of the world-famous beer festival, many of them running towards the massive beer tent. With the traditional three knocks of a hammer and a cry of Osapt is, it's tapped. Munich's mayor declared the festival open. Bands marched into the Hofbrau tent, setting the mood as crowds had been waiting since 2019 to revisit the huge drinking party. Jackson, an American tourist from Oregon, said he was excited to be there on the first day of the 17-day festival. I'm looking forward to drinking beer and seeing German culture. The Oktoberfest has typically drawn about 6 million visitors every year to packed festival grounds in Bavaria's capital. The event did not take place in 2020 and 2021 because of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Karen Chamas. i got to make sure to mention the pandemic in there. How can it be a news story if we don't end up mentioning the pandemic as well? How will people ever remember why Oktoberfest didn't happen the last two years? Critical, critical journalism right there. Okay. Beyond me doing some media criticism in real time. Oktoberfest. Six million visitors. People traveling from all around the world. Like Oregon. To drink beer and experience German culture. It got me thinking why we travel. What catalyzes somebody to open up Expedia or the Google Flight Matrix or Hotels.com and say, I'm going somewhere. What makes us do it? Where does that compulsion come from? So let's bring in Nizreen Abdelmajid, Ramya Amuthan, and Alex Smythe to find out their thoughts on this one. Good morning, Nizreen. Good morning. And hello, Ramya. Hey, Dave. We've already said hello to Alex, so no need to reintroduce. Nizreen, what is the thing that motivates you to travel? Uh, I think cheap flights, and when I'm feeling burnt out, I think that's when I'm like, okay, I need to drop everything and go. 
So I, I don't need a specific excuse, actually. I think it just <laughs> I would do anything to travel. So you say a cheap flight is something that'll get you to go. Does that mean you're monitoring flights? Are you perpetually punching that into the Google flight, flight matrix and being like, ah, ha, ha, let's see where I can go for cheap this weekend? Or does something still need to come across like your 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 inbox or something? You get a notification from an airline saying, hey, Nazreen, guess what? Cheap flight this weekend. So I have a lot of... Uh, uh, Instagram accounts that I follow where they have like specific places, really beautiful places. And that makes me go on Google, type in cheapo air and see cheap flights. <laughs> so it, it does like, I do check it once a week just to see maybe there's something for me. Uh, but I never go through with it. It's been, it's been, <laughs> you never do until you do. Until you, you never until do I until do, you exactly. do. Exactly. Ramya Nazreen says a good deal will get her off the couch and onto an airplane. What about you? Yeah, good deal definitely helps because that means that the option for travel is actually there. But the the thing that makes me want to travel, um, or one of the reasons why I love traveling is because I like just exploring new places. Um, I come back and I, you know, talk about what was accessibility like there what was it like paying in this currency what was the culture like did I feel like I really got to know people who live in a different place um, and know the place through them you know this kind of stuff is just very fun uh, it's different for me I don't consider myself super extroverted so I think traveling helps me get there you know whether I go with people I know or by myself because I've done some traveling on my own as well uh, I feel like it really just opens up new aspects of myself that I don't get to know when I'm just hanging out at home doing the same old routine going to the same places all the time um, and you could say yeah but you could just go around Toronto and do other things but I actually just love going way out way out and exploring different places. No, no. I've dug myself a nice little rut in this city. I'm not pulling myself out of my <laughs> own city ruts. I don't want to start spoiling myself. Ramya, I need to scratch a little bit deeper, though, because although I am I think you're accepting the premise of the question, I think you're rejecting mm -hmm. the premise of, like, the, the true spirit of the question, which is what's actually going to get you to go into that web platform and book a flight to there? right? Wherever there may be, what is it that's going to draw mm -hmm. you there beyond sort of breaking your routine? Cause you could break your routine in Mississippi or you could break your routine in California or in Ecuador or in yeah. Kenya. So what is it that like is actually going to spawn you and say, I'm going to go book this trip. I don't know. Usually it's just like, Hey, I haven't explored this place yet. So I, I want to go right. Like for example, there's many, many places in Canada we talk about and we, uh, you know, get to experience it through like all the contributors and community reporters. Uh, but then for me, it's like, but I want to go visit that place. It, I yearn to uh, try out this, this place in the country. So, but Maybe then the tactile version of it is deals. It's like when I get, um, I'm a, I'm an Expedia. I like Expedia a lot. I just had good experiences with them. So going to Expedia and finding deals, finding things that look like they make sense in my budget, uh, because I budget out times or amounts of the year that yeah. I'd like to spend on traveling particularly. Mm -hmm. So that is helpful. Yeah, okay. I'm 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 buying your response. I'm sorry. Maybe I'm being a little bit of an ungracious mm -hmm. host, but I, I, I but I'm but I'm thinking about the context of say Oktoberfest, right? Maybe in my twenties, yeah. I for sure would have said that's an event that would make me travel to Germany. Now that I'm approaching forty, uh, no dice. <laughs>
no dice. I do not want to be surrounded by people in a large beer hall, beer tent. Uh, yeah. No, no dice. I'll go to Munich on my own terms and drink beer in Munich on my own terms, not on these Oktoberfest terms. But I do think about no. events, right? That I've traveled to go see hockey games in various places and then built a trip around it. I've gone to the Super Bowl in Las okay. Vegas and then built a trip around that event that brought me there. And of course, friends and family. I mean, why have I been to Vancouver like 12 times in the last 14 years? Because exactly. I have so many friends and family out there that it just like the vacation is built into my trip into my purpose so it gets me thinking about sort of what are the things that will get me moving and sometimes I'm circling dates on calendars being like well that's the time I can get off and where can I okay. where can I go in this time I want to bring in Alex Smythe for his thoughts on this one Alex I know I, I know I kind of set up this premise for you as well today I know you've had to do this professionally, doing a number of episodes from postcards, uh, postcards from the AMI TV show. But what makes you motivated to travel? What motivates you to get on an airplane or a train or a van and go somewhere? I well, I'm always up for travel. I mean, that's part of uh, the territory of coming when you host a travel show. But uh, like for me, it's I'm always eager to explore somewhere new, learn about the culture, the history. I'm a big history nerd. I love like food and, and all the different types of food and food that you won't like, let's say for instance, like German or, or Thai or, or, or Vietnamese or something like that. You can get, you know, those cuisines in, in Toronto and in, in Ontario, but you know, there's something different to going to a place and getting the authentic dishes, the dishes that don't really, kind of leave the borders and trying something you would never try anywhere else. That, that really excites me. But when I'm like looking for a specific destination or be like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to book this trip. I, I have to travel with people. You know, it, it's my comfort level. Like I've done a bit of solo traveling here and there, and I just don't like it. I, I need to share the experience with somebody. So I have a small group of friends that we travel with and we've done it a few different times. So, I always have my like list of basically it's essentially the entire world that I want to go to. It's like, Oh, well, wh what about this place? What about this place? Like I'll come with 20 ideas. And it's basically just working with that group and be like, okay, what, what can everyone afford to do? What is everyone interested in doing? They also have a small child now. So it's like, okay, what is a, a child friendly yes. place yes. or type of trip that we can, we can incorporate. Now that's not to say I'm, I'm not going to go to some of these other places with different people or, or at a different point. But it's like right now, that's kind of how we focus in our trips. Yeah, there's certain places where maybe the young child, you're not going to be like, oh, Bangkok, Thailand. Perfect idea to go with a young child. Maybe not the same. I, maybe Iceland the same thing. in the wintertime. What could possibly go wrong? I mean, get them little ice picks and, and let them climb the mountains with us. <laughs> you just, we'll teach them to be survivalists from a young age. Okay, exactly. so I think, I think the general theme that I'm picking up here is one, just people needing need a change of pace. But it seems like across the board, everyone is also sort of in the can I get a cheap flight to get there category. I think mm -hmm. that helps. I think that helps. But I would love to explore like all the cultures out there. And that's what motivates me to go and see how their lifestyle is, how it's different from us. And it's so insane how every country, every city, in fact, does it differently. So it is um, it is pretty amazing to travel and explore all of that. I work under the theory that I no longer travel, I vacation. 
because traveling and vacationing are something totally different, right? You don't go to an all-inclusive resort in yeah. Jamaica and say you just traveled. No, no, you just went on vacation. But vacation. it's mm-hmm. but it seems no matter where I take myself, vacation finds me. It's like, oh, yeah. well, I'm just gonna sleep in today and like go eat lunch wherever, and like that's it. There will be no there'll be no high culture when Dave Brown's in town. He's just doing his own thing. <laughs> Exactly. Well, and, and Dave, the thing too, like I, I'm similar. Like I always divide it in two ways. There's the the relaxing trips, the all inclusive, and then there's the culture trips. And in uh, reference to your last question, talking about like, well, the the price. There's also in my mind, I always know there's some big expensive trips I want to do. Like for instance, I want to go on African safaris. I also want to go down to Antarctica and and set foot on the continent. I know those are very mm-hmm. expensive trips, regardless of when or how you get there those are going to be big budget trips so those are a trip i will look at for you know five six years down the road i will save up incrementally to get to that but but i could also do a cheaper trip in the meantime going somewhere you know more close to home or or something more a bit more affordable like an all-inclusive or or a cheap cruise or something like Mm -hmm. that that i still i can still scratch that travel itch that i have while also having a long-term goal of, I want to go to Antarctica, and it's going to cost me eight to ten thousand dollars. It, it's like my long-term plan to go to the Maldives. I'm going to try to get there before mm-hmm. the ocean overtakes Maldives. Right now, the ocean's yep. winning that race. Alex, thank you for this. Nazreen, thank you as well. Ramya, you don't get to go away just yet because you're going to tell me what's coming up on Kelly and Company at two p.m. Eastern time. That's right, Dave. And since it's a Monday, we like to kick off the week with Brock Richardson. He tells us the latest in sports and gives us some things to think about. Uh, On Healthy at Home, which is an AMI-TV show, Mm -hmm. fitness instructor Bobby Jensen guides viewers through a home workout that tones and strengthens for everyday living. And Bobby's actually coming on the show to tell us more about uh, her passion for fitness and, you know, why the show is a big deal. And then Leanne Barda, she's joining us now on third Monday of every month to talk independent living skills. So she's up today. And today's topic is kind of a back to school theme. We're talking expanded core curriculum and specialized education for uh, disability communities. That's a very interesting topic. No doubt about it. Ramya, thank you for this. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. Thanks for the roundtable, Dave. That's Ramya Amuthan, the co-host of Kelly and Company, which comes your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up next, the federal government is working on a retrofitting project in Winkler, Manitoba. Jim Crisco will fill you in. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Jim Crisco is here. He's an AMI content development specialist joining us from Edmonton. Hey, good morning, Jim. Good morning, Dave. So, Jim, lots going on out there in the western region of the country. We'll begin in Manitoba, specifically Winkler, getting some upgrades to a facility to make it more inclusive. So what facility is getting the facelift? Uh, The facility, Dave, is is the, uh, the Centennial Arena in Winkler. And uh, so it's a, it's an arena that I believe is over 50 years old. Um, I think about 56 years old, uh, close to it. So what they're finally doing is um, they're they're redoing it, or they're 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 putting some infrastructure money into it in order to make it far more accessible. 
uh, for folks. And uh, and so it's some big improvements coming to the arena, and it's going to be great for the community, for everyone. Everyone's going to be able to enjoy it. So a chunk of this is coming from the Federal Infrastructure Bank, but what are some of the upgrades that are going to be uh, laid out here into the facility? Uh, what they're looking for or looking at is uh, inclusive washrooms and lobbies, uh, modern inclusive change facilities, uh, new concessions and food services and multi-use spaces, and sledge hockey, dasher boards, and benches. So they're really doing a nice uh, retrofit on this. They're really making this uh, this arena, I, I think they're giving it, you know, many, many more years of, of extra life out of uh, what they're doing. Yeah, it makes sense to, in terms of creating uh, the, the proper boards for, for multi-use, multi-use sports that are more inclusive, either they, whether they be ramped, uh, ramped down from the benches or other points of access onto the ice. And as you say, you've got to make sure you're fixing up the change rooms and washrooms and all that stuff as well. If you're going to say our facility is here for athletes with disabilities, then the whole arena better be for people with disabilities as well. Jim, let's uh, jump That's over it. to a different story in Alberta, where local photographer's work has made the cover of the current issue of Canadian Geographic magazine. So let's start with the photographer, Michael Lenauer. Absolutely. Michael Lenauer is from Lethbridge, Alberta. And, and uh, uh, he was, uh, the explanation of how he got this photo is really interesting as well. He was in Waterton, uh, Akima, uh, Akamina, Akamina Lake, sorry, in Waterton. And Waterton Lakes, by the way, if you've ever had a chance to go down there or haven't yet and want to in your travel, uh, it, you probably will never never see more wildlife in a national park than in Waterton. I've saw, uh, you know, I've seen. I was there for a few days camping and probably saw seven bears in that time. It was just amazing. So, uh, so anyhow, he was out, went out one early morning for a walk, uh, and heard some splashing near him, and there was a uh, a, a cow moose and a calf uh, just off to his to his to the side. And he was in a great spot and, and took some amazing pictures. And I, I, I saw the, the, um, the cover photo that actually ended up getting used for Canadian Geographic. And it honestly is amazing. It looks like almost like they posed for this photo, uh, you know, looking at him and the camera. But yet it was an extremely natural, beautiful setting. Uh, they're standing in water and there's, you know, just a slight fog around them. You, you almost couldn't create a better uh, scenario than that it sounds like a real snippet of canadiana of of meese of meese or mooses playing around <laughs> in the water surrounded by fog i'm curious what the significance is of this picture being chosen and the process that goes in to getting a picture like this on the cover of canadian geographic well it's it's very uh very interesting because you can submit photos to canadian geographic and uh and they get sort of I guess judged and and looked at by folks and they you know people vote on them etc and and it, it initially people started to say you know what you should put this they do a calendar every year this should go in the calendar uh, it would be a, a beautiful calendar photo and then sort of momentum built because it's such a nice photo and it went into being considered for the cover and it ended up being chosen as a cover so uh, it sounded like it was a very sort of organic thing where people started to view the photo really like it uh, the interaction of of the folks that were sort of voting on the photo and seeing the photo uh, drew, put it into pot, you know, uh, obviously increased its popularity. So um, so it's really cool. Uh, uh, Michael himself does not consider himself a, a professional photographer. He he considers himself a hobbyist uh, and an amateur. 
And so, um, so it was thrilling for him. But the, the other thing, too, uh, before we uh, sort of leave the story, uh, that there's two reasons why I really found it interesting. One is um, Michael also has uh, a form of colorblindness. So he typically does not see the colors the same way when he's taking the photo as the colors actually turn out. He has a, a, a corrective lens that he can put on where he can see the colors more properly and, and uh, you know, then he, he can do some color correction, et cetera. Um, and the other thing is too, his motivation for taking the photos is he likes to provide photos for people who po uh, potentially can't get out to these areas to see the wildlife or to see whatever he's uh, photographing. And, uh, and so he likes people to be able to live vicariously through his photos. So I thought that's a really, really nice, uh, mm. uh, great, great reason to get into photography. Yeah, for noted indoorsmen like me as opposed to outdoorsmen <laughs> like you. Uh, Jim, I, I can't say that telling me you saw seven bears is much of a sales pitch for me visiting this neck of the woods in Alberta. <laughs> but tell me a bit more about it and, and why, why it's a place that, that has drawn you in and draws in so many people who do like the outdoors. Well, the thing about uh, Waterton is it's, it's actually kind of a dead end. In, in southern Alberta, you, you you drive all the way down to it, but you can't really go through it. You can't go down to the U.S. necessarily through Waterton. So because of that, there's a lot less traffic. It's people who go there, it's the destination to go there. Um, and that's why the interaction with wildlife is a lot closer. For instance, on the one trip that we saw, there was a, 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 a grizzly bear with two cubs that was you know, 200 yards maybe off the side of the road where folks are taking pictures at a safe distance. Uh, and as we were taking pictures of the grizzly, a black bear walked through everyone to get down to that part of the the, the road as well. Uh, there's this that many um, animals and there's that much wildlife. But uh, Waterton is, 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 I think, fairly unique because it's, it doesn't have a lot of through traffic. It's just a, a destination. People go, they enjoy, they hike, they, you can, at the time that I was there, you could boat across the water uh, on a, on a tour boat and they take you to the American side over the, the border and you'd get a little presentation presentation from uh, American park rangers and then you'd come back. But they've since stopped that because of, um, you know, the different border rules and such now. <laughs> yeah, just have people <laughs> casually crossing the border willy-nilly on a boat these days. Yeah, the border <laughs> patrol's a little bit, little bit tighter on those fronts. Hey, Jim, thank you for bringing us these stories. We appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. Have a great week. That's Jim Crisco, a content development specialist for AMI based out in Western Canada in Edmonton, Alberta. Coming up on the show tomorrow, Dr. Sebastian Jodoy is going to discuss a recent report on the impacts of climate change on people with disabilities. The show gets started at 9 a.m. Eastern time right here on AMI-tv. We'll share the news, we'll do the poll, and then we'll talk to Dr. Jodoy. Until we do that, until we hang out tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun.
Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.